All right. Well, this is kind of a special edition of Visible Saints because this last week, for some reason, my mic did not record. So this is kind of solo podcast style. If it sounds a little bit different, might be a little bit quicker. I'm not sure. Maybe it'll be longer because I don't have the the time restraints. But I want to just remind you guys that we have all the files um, online. Um, if you need help finding those, I'm more than happy to direct your way to them. But if you just click on uh, the the title, uh, once you're on the church website, that should take you to a different website, and you'll have the notes, the slides, um, and the of course the audio file there as well. So <clears throat> all that will be there for you. This is our, our fifth week. We are looking at Communion with God uh, by John Owen. This book, I believe, really is a goldmine, um, especially the abridged version. They did a really good job of making it accessible, uh, but still without, you know, not sacrificing what Owen was trying to say. Um, so it's a really, really good volume. I'd highly recommend that. I also wanted to mention, I mentioned this um, in class Sunday morning, um, for those of you ladies out there, uh, we've been talking about a lot of guys who are, you know, pastors and what they've written. Crossley came out with a book a couple of years ago um, called Five Puritan Women. I haven't read it. I don't know. Um, I can't say I endorse the book wholeheartedly, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's really good, has really good reviews. Um, guys that I know have said it's really good. Um, so ladies, that option is out there for you, Five Puritan Women. Before we get into communion with God, I always try to go through a quick recap. Like I said, the first several weeks, and again, if you're following on the slides, um, you'll see this here, who exactly were the Puritans. We've looked at that historically the first three weeks, really now focusing on what can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord. And we started with George Swinnick last week. We saw that the Puritans can help us big time because they help us think true, deep, biblical thoughts of God, um, and not just to think those thoughts in and of themselves, but ultimately to love God more as a result. You see on the next slide here, uh, his introduction to his book, he says, it is certain that our happiness in the other world will consist in large part in our perfect knowledge of the blessed and boundless God. And it is as certain that our holiness in this world does not a little depend upon our knowledge of him whose name alone is excellent. And so you notice there, I made the point last week, uh, the link that he makes in his introduction. You know, not only is there a link between our knowledge of God and our eternal destiny, that's true, and that is of utmost importance, but he adds that our present life of holiness in this world does not a little depend. In other words, he's saying it greatly depends upon our knowledge of God. And so he's saying, if you want to live a holy, sanctified, godly life now, we don't move on from the knowledge of God. We continually go back to him. Then we looked at, you see this here on the slides, God is incomparable in his very essence or being. Went through many of these incommunicable attributes. God is independent. He's perfect, universal, unchangeable, eternal, simple, infinite, incomprehensible. Touched on some of his uh, more communicable attributes of God, his power, his knowledge, his mercy. He has this great quote here. Um, commenting on Job 42, 5 and 6, when at the end of uh, the account of Job, where he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Swinnick says here, the more we know the greatest good, the more we shall hate the greatest 
evil. And that's really essential to what he's doing in that book. And what all the Puritans would try to do is that our knowledge of God affects how we live. It affects our thoughts, obviously, of God, how we live those out, but how we deal with sin. Uh, looking at God hate, helps us to hate sin more. And finally, um, last slide here with Swinnick, he says, we never are so low in our own eyes as when we see the Most High God. So that was just an introduction to Swinnick last week and how the Puritans thought about God. I think it's key to remember that starting point he put, points out that our holiness, happiness, godliness, joy in this life as a Christian is dependent upon our knowledge of him. And then this is where we left off, right? Remember this quote from Owen, the next slide here. What does he write on our communion with God, right? And that's what we're talking about in this book this morning. It says, the sum of all true wisdom and knowledge may be reduced to these three heads. Number one, the knowledge of God, his nature and his properties. Number two, the knowledge of ourselves in reference to the will of God concerning us. And number three, skill to walk in communion with God. And so Owen really is building off that foundation we looked at last week. If Swinnick was talking about this is who the great God is, this is who the incomparable triune God is, Owen is saying we must grow in our love, delight, our wholehearted knowledge of him as we study who he is. And, and this is essential, that knowledge must influence how we walk as believers. Day in and day out, our knowledge of him must change how we live. And so before we jump into communion with God, I wanted to give you, if you see the next slide there, a brief introduction to John Owen. Right? There you see his picture, his dates. From 1616 to 1683, uh, that's when he's born. In uh, 1616, dies in 1683. He begins college at uh, 12 and he graduates with his master's degree at 19. Um, just a quick side thing, how they did school then was different from how we do it now. <laughs> I would argue they were far more intelligent, far more disciplined, far more hardworking and rigorous, especially academically rigorous. I mean, some of these entrance exams, you'd see they even get into these colleges. You know, you'd have to translate Greek into English, Hebrew into English, Latin into English. I mean, that's to get into college, whereas now, you know, once you're done with seminary, you know, maybe, you know, even like done with a PhD, you're hoping to be able to, to do that. So it's just, it's just different. Someone with a master's degree from the 17th century and someone with a, a PhD from today, you know, are in some ways on similar level. But I would even argue the guys back then would have us beat. So it's just different. So anyways, Owen at age 26 that's when the English Civil War breaks out, right? Remember that in 1642? Uh, that's when Parliament um, essentially declares war on the king and England is in a state of civil war. And so this is essential because really the prime of Owen's life really is during the rise of the Puritans to power. This is just providentially when he uh, becomes prominent. Um, Owen is regarded by the vast majority um, of you know, Reformed Puritan scholars, just church historians, as the greatest English theologian ever. Just a absolutely brilliant, brilliant mind. And so he really is in the prime of his life uh, when the Puritans come to power. In 1643, 
he publishes his first book titled A Display of Arminianism, being a discovery of the old Pelagian idol, Free Will. And the subtitle goes on and on, but this is where he begins to become well-known as a brilliant theological thinker. Later on, he writes a book titled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, which is the most thorough uh, argument for what we would call um, definite atonement or particular redemption, what was known as back then as limited atonement. Um, But you see throughout Owen, and really all the Puritans saw this, uh, was that Arminianism um, in its elevation of free will, um, they saw it really rooted in or leading to, vice versa, they saw it related to in some aspect, to Pelagianism or Socinianism, you know, these views that man is not completely and totally depraved, that he has enough Uh, grace in and of himself to respond to the call of the gospel and that he can essentially save himself. Um, They did not hold back at calling that out as unbiblical. They saw it as stealing God of his glory and salvation. It elevated man um, in his pride. It was man-centered, and they wrote vehemently against it, right? Uh, And you see that even just in those two titles from Owen. And also you have to realize historically, too, when Cromwell comes to power in England, um, a lot of these teachings, because there's much more freedom of religion, uh, freedom of belief, which was good in some aspects, it's also bad, uh, because you did have guys like the Quakers and the Pelagians and the Socinians popping up, and these heresies then began to spread. And so that was one of the reasons why they wrote so vehemently against it as well. Next slide there, you see the picture of an old church that is St. Peter's Church in Coggleshaw, England. And Owen begins pastoring here in 1646. Uh, The pastor before him is a Puritan named Obadiah Sedgwick. Um, He ministered here to about 2,000 souls, Um, so a very large church. Um, And Owen is here for a couple of years, and it's here, from best we can tell, that Owen switches his church polity from Presbyterianism to Congregationalism, right? We've talked about that many times, or several times, at least in the last couple of weeks, uh, where Owen sees the authority of the church in matters of doctrine and discipline, uh, you know, plurality of elders, being not in a presbytery or a synod, a higher court of appeals. He sees that highest court of appeals actually being the local congregation, And you actually see this, we have a little book here on the rooted table uh, called Duties of Christian Fellowship. Uh, It's an abridged, simplified version um, of Owen's congregationalism. Well, he wrote that book when he was pastoring this church. Uh, And so it seems clearly that he moves to congregationalism here. Really, really good, easy to read. That's the easiest book of Owen to read by far. So if you want an introduction, I'd start there. Anyways, his knowledge and fame in England begins to grow. He begins to preach before Parliament. He actually preaches the sermon to Parliament the day after they beheaded King Charles, right? So in 1649, right, the English Civil War is um, over. Parliament has won. The vast majority of Puritans uh, were on the side of Parliament. Well, they actually execute the king, King Charles I. And the day after they execute him, Owen preaches to Parliament on, you know, essentially the biblical role of government. 
uh, now that there's this new type of, I mean, they literally just executed the king, so they're not going to have the same type of government <laughs> that they just had. And so he's, he preaches to them on what the biblical role of government should be. Uh, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, is impressed by his preaching um, and Owen actually becomes his chaplain uh, while Cromwell is off fighting in Ireland and I think Scotland later on. But it's almost like you can, you know, it's hard to imagine, but pretend, you know, the United States is having, you know, the State of the Union where both houses of Congress come together, right? You've got the Senate, the House of Representatives, uh, the Supreme Court is there, and, you know, the president is speaking to them and also to the whole nation. You know, it's almost like you can imagine if the president, if like Joe Biden asked John Piper to come preach at the State of the Union on the role of government and, you know, the gospel. I mean, it's just hard to imagine what that would look like, you know, or if John MacArthur got up and started preaching before uh, Congress. But that's basically what happens. Cromwell preaches before all of Parliament, just different times, right? Next picture here you see from, uh, that is Christ Church College in Oxford, okay? From 1651 to 1660, this is where Owen served as the dean, okay? Um, he was the dean of Christ Church uh, at Oxford. Here he's essentially the head administrator in training young men for ministry. So he preaches here, he teaches, he lectures on theology. Uh, these are some of his most productive years in terms of teaching that later becomes books, right? So um, what we'll look at next week uh, of the mortification of sin and uh, on temptation to really well-known, practical uh, books that Owen writes. Well, these are from when he's training men for ministry here. He also writes Communion with God, which is the book that we are looking at today. Um, so some very, very productive years. Again, he's here from 1651 to 1660. And if you remember the great ejection that happens in 1662, Charles II comes back to power. The Puritans lose their pulpits, well over 2,000. Some estimate over 2,500 Puritan pastors are ejected from their pulpits. And from this time on, Owen essentially ministers in smaller house churches until he passes away in 1683. He writes numerous other books. Uh, most notably, he writes a massive uh, seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. And, you know, each one of these books is like 500 pages, and they're not large font either. <laughs> so, I mean, it is a just massive commentary on the book of Hebrews. This is when he befriends John Bunyan. Um, and from what we can understand, it seems that he helps to get his book published. Because what happens with the Pilgrim's Progress is that it's published by John Owen's publisher. I think his name was Nathaniel Ponder. Um, but it makes sense, you know, if Owen is one of the most well-known thinkers and writers in the land, you know, he has a fairly well-known publisher and fairly prominent. Well, Bunyan's just a tinker, right? He just fixes pots, okay? He's not, and you know, he hasn't really done much of anything. It, it's not likely that he's going to get published by one of the big, you know, well-known publishers in the land. And so it's not it's super clear, uh, but Owen certainly thought very, very highly of Bunyan. Uh, he said that he would trade all his gifts, um, you know, his intellectual gifts, if he could just preach like John Bunyan. Um, so it seems that he helped him get Pilgrim's Progress published. And that, of course, after that is when the book just blows up and it's being read by everyone. 
And so he befriends John Bunyan, um, and in 1673, so a few years before he passes away, his congregation, uh, Owen's congregation, about 30 people, again, small church, uh, but his congregation actually merges with Joseph Carl's congregation. So if you guys remember Joseph Carl from last week, he's the guy who preached for 24 years on the book of Job. <laughs> uh, they, that's that guy. Owen and his congregation, when Joseph Carl passes away, they actually merge. Um, and so Owen pastors that congregation. And so that is a brief survey of the life of John Owen. Spent a little bit more time here probably than, than last week, because we'll be looking at Owen, particularly uh, this week, obviously next week, the week to follow. He's a good one to have a decent handle on. Um, the last thing he writes is called Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. And so that's actually volume one in his collected works. Um, they also have that in an abridged version. Uh, but it's pretty significant that at the end of his life, he just turns to and looks to Christ. It's a glorious introduction um, to the person and work of Christ, how everything points to him. And by the way, if Owen uh, piques your interest, Crossway Publishing, they're, they're working on a, it's a massive project. Um, they're coming out over the next, I think, six, seven years. They're republishing all of Owen's works. Um, I think they're even going back to the original Latin, uh, whatever they were written in. They're updating it for a modern reader. It's going to be 40 volumes, okay? So, I mean, it is a huge, uh, huge, huge works collection. Um, but there are definitely some volumes in there that I would recommend uh, you get if Owen piques your interest. Um, and what's nice is that, I mean, they're, they are updating it for the modern reader uh, to help you understand exactly what's being said. So I'd highly recommend those. Now, on to communion with God. On to communion with God. So you see the next slide there. This is a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, It is almost presumption to recommend any work by Dr. John Owen. All his works are of the greatest value and profit, but this one on communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is particularly so. It is one of his greatest experimental works. If you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, he essentially helped start the Banner of Truth Trust um, in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, I believe. Um, and they, they're one of the main reasons why the Puritans are known today. Uh, it's because they really sought to republish uh, the works of guys like John Owen um, and stuff like that. But anyways, he says here, <clears throat> it is one of his greatest experimental works. And I wanted to pause here before we jump into communion with God. If you start reading the Puritans, you're going to start seeing this word kind of all over the place. Sometimes in the secondary literature, when people are commenting on the Puritans, they'll start saying experimental or experiential. You know, he was an experimental divine preacher. He was an experiential theologian. I wanted to, I asked this question in class, what do you guys think that means? Well, really what they're trying to get across here is they're trying to dispel this notion that the Puritans were cold, dry, boring, sucking on lemons, Calvinists. <laughs> That's really what they're trying to get across. That's just simply not true, okay? Um, now, I, I mean, you have to point out, the Puritans did preach for a long time, okay? They would, you know, it's very common for them to preach for over an hour. Um, you know, I have no doubt that 
you know, if Mark preached for an hour and a half, you know, if some of us, we'd be tempted to doze off, okay? Uh, I get that, I get that. But you have to also realize historically what's going on here is, you know, the people didn't have the Bible in their language for centuries. Now that they do, I mean, they are starving for the truth. We actually have accounts of where Puritans were preaching for over an hour and a half, two hours. They would sit down to, to stop and the congregation would say, keep going, keep preaching. I mean, there's just a famine for the Word of God, and they loved to hear it preached. And what they mean here by experimental, experiential, is that the, the work of God in salvation was something that we experienced, okay? When you see experimental or experiential, they're, the, they're referring to the same thing, okay? The Puritans believed that God's sovereign grace was something that we had to experience in our lives, the theology of Scripture had to be lived out, okay? You could say the Puritans were big feelers, okay? Uh, we would say, you know, maybe even emotional today. Um, they believed in the primacy of cultivating godly affections, okay? They were not, you know, the sometimes you hear them referred to as like the frozen chosen, you know, never showed emotions or anything like that. It's just simply not true. And what Lloyd-Jones is saying here is that this book, Communion with God, is one of his greatest experiential works. In other words, it's a work that's designed to help us experience the grace of God in our daily lives. A couple other quotes here um, from uh, Stephen Yule, who's one of my professors in seminary. He summarizes the Puritans here. This is what he says, we must experience an effective appropriation of God's sovereign grace, moving beyond intellectual assent to heartfelt dedication to Christ. I know I've talked about this. It can't, the Puritans did not stop at head knowledge. Yes, you need to have the right head knowledge, but it needs to affect your heart. It needs to affect your whole manner and way of life. Another quote here from Joel Beakey. He says, experiential preaching then teaches that the Christian faith must be experienced, tasted, and lived through the saving power of the Holy Spirit. Beakey's done numerous, I mean, he's probably authored or edited over a hundred books on the Puritans, just um, has really helped in understanding them. So notice, this is what they're talking about when we talk about experimental or experiential. They're going back to what Lloyd-Jones is saying. They're saying that the Christianity, the doctrines of grace, the Reformed theology, the big God Calvinism of the Puritans was incredibly rich in theology. And, this is the experimental part, and how that theology was supposed to be lived out. The Puritans didn't just have the big God theology, they also had the big God theology of life. Does that make sense, the link between the two? And this is why I think they can be so helpful. Uh, because I think we can, we can tend to, oh, you know, we're reformed, we're, maybe we'll even claim to be a Calvinist, uh, but we can just be boring. <laughs> and we can be dry uh, and not passionate for the glory of God. Look, if you're not passionate for the glory of God and the salvation of souls and the preeminence of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit, that's not good biblical Calvinism. John Calvin would not be happy about that, okay? Um, and the Puritans correct us on that, okay? Now, I would add quickly here, there can be an over-reliance on experience, okay? I think especially in our day and age, that certainly can be the case where you know, you don't get the right feelings, uh, you know, when you hear a sermon or when you're listening to worship music or anything like that. Don't do that, okay? 
Don't over rely on your feelings. Look, you know, if you're sitting in a sermon and you get 10 seconds of gold where you just feel that, you know, the word of God is particularly pressing on you at, at that point, whether to convict or encourage, to build up, whatever it might be, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about here. That is experimental religion. And the Puritans wanted more of that. They wanted more of Christian doctrine to be lived out. And so that aside, you see on the next slide here, the cover page of communion with God. Okay, This is, I believe, from the original printing there in 1657 of communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each person distinctly. Okay. Important note on this, when Owen's talking about communion with God, he's not referring merely to our feelings, okay? That's certainly there. What he's referring to, what he's trying to focus upon is the relationship of grace from God to a soul saved by grace, okay? I said a lot there. Basically, he's talking about the relationship between God and the saved Christian, okay? What is that relationship like? What does it consist of? He's more focused on the fellowship the relationship, the communion with God the believer has with each person of the Trinity. And here's some of the texts that he uses uh, on the next slide here. Just notice this, 1 John 1, 3, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So clearly from that verse, who does a believer have fellowship with? The Father. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he just, this is just an introduction, but he takes those three verses and others and he says, look, it's very clear from Scripture that believers have communion, they have a relationship, they have fellowship with each member of the Trinity. We have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with the Son, and we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. On the next slide here, here's another quote. He says, but there is this difference with each persons of the Godhead. The Father communicates with us on the basis of his being the origin of all authority. The Son communicates with us out of a purchased treasury. The Holy Spirit communicates with us by direct personal working in us. So he's trying to do justice <clears throat> excuse me, he's trying to do justice to the biblical texts. How do we have a relationship with each person of the Trinity? What does it eminently consist of? What are its particular characteristics? And so you see here on the next slide, communion with the triune God, communion with the Father in love, communion with the Son in grace, communion with the Holy Spirit in comfort. And so if you have the notes there, those are those main three points, communion with the Father in love, communion with the Son in grace, communion with the Holy Spirit in comfort. Now Owen, he makes a very important theological point right up front. We're not talking about tritheism, right? There is only one true and living God. But that one true and living God exists in three persons, right? So he's not saying here that only the Father is loving 
and not the Son. No, the Father is love, and so is the Son and is the Holy Spirit. He's not saying the Holy Spirit comforts only, and the Son and the Father don't. No, they all three do. But what he's trying to say is that Scripture is clear that eminently each of these three things, love, grace, and comfort, are attributed to each member of the Trinity, one in particular, the Father in love, the Son in grace, the Holy Spirit in comfort. And he says here, um, I don't have this on the slides, but one quote that was helpful. He says, by what act soever we hold communion with any person, there's an influence from every person to the putting forth of that act. So he's saying, look, if we have communion with the Father in love, we don't have that communion uh, with the Father in love only from him, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are involved in that work, okay? And vice versa with all the other uh, communions, right? Communion with the Son in grace. Well, that's communicated to us eminently through the Son, but the Father and the Holy Spirit are also involved in saying with the Holy Spirit, etc. Okay? He's not talking about God being a composition of parts. Okay? Remember divine simplicity? We talked about that last week. It's not that you know, God is 25% love, 15% holy, uh, 30% grace. No. He's not saying only the Father is love and only the Son is grace and only the Holy Spirit is comfort. No, 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 no. God is not a composition of parts. That is heresy. That is contrary to what the church and the Bible teaches. He's simply trying to specify which particular person of the Trinity mainly works this way in the life of the believer. Okay? And if you're confused, I mean, think about this. You know, who died on the cross? The Son, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. The Holy Spirit did not die on the cross. Only one of the persons did, right? The Spirit who's poured out in our hearts, as Romans 8 says, that's the Holy Spirit. It's not the Father. It's not the Son, right? The Father is the one who sent the Son. The Son did not send the Father. I mean, we can just go on and on with these things. We're trying to reconcile these biblical texts, okay? What person preeminently of the Godhead does these certain things. And Owen's just trying to expound on them. So with that, let's jump in. Point number one, the believer holds communion with the Father in love. The believer holds communion with the Father in love. This was a paradigm-shifting moment for me, just personally. In Owen's book, I don't think he says anything new or radical or profound that the Bible doesn't clearly teach. He just puts those pieces together, and this was a, a kind of an aha, wow moment for me. His scripture is so clear on this. Um, you see this in the slide here. I've got 1 John 4, 8 to 10. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a very clear verse. The love being articulated here is the love of the Father, right? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Who's the one who sent the son? The Father. The Father is the one who loves his people. I mean, you can just think of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The Father is the one who loves. I think we are quick to think 
of the love of Christ. We're quick to think of his sacrificial love in dying on the cross for our sins. He laid down his life for the sheep. He took on human flesh. He took on weakness and frailty uh, to atone for our sins. It is evident that Christ loves us, and we should cling to that. Amen. I'm, I'm not trying to discount that at all. But with the Father, I think in our Christian life, our kind of first natural thought, especially when we sin, is that the Father is displeased, that he's angry, that he's wrathful, that, you know, the Father is just standing up in heaven, just wanting to pour out God's wrath upon us, but the Son intercedes for us and we're okay. I think Owen is seeking to biblically correct that misconception that the Father is just seated in heaven, just waiting to get us, okay? Look at this quote. Christians walk oftentimes with exceedingly troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father towards them, what I was just talking about. He says, they are well persuaded of the Lord Christ and his goodwill. The difficulty lies in what is their acceptance with the Father? What is his heart towards them? This is what he's saying. Look, with believers, we understand the love of Christ. But believers often walk with troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father. Does he love us? Is he still loving? Or is he just in heaven waiting to pour out his wrath upon us? How can we be certain that the Father loves his people? Well, Owen answers his own question, right? He goes back to 1 John 4, 9. God manifests his love through the Son. The Son, Jesus Christ, is how we can know that God the Father loves his people. He says, quote, Jesus Christ, in respect of the love of the Father, is but the beam, the stream, wherein though actually all of our light, our refreshment lies, yet by him we are led to the fountain, the Son of eternal love itself. Here's what he's saying. It's almost like, you know, the sun on a, you know, a foggy day or something like that. The sun is shining through. And when you go stand in where the sun is shining, you feel the warmth. And it is wonderful, right? You stand in that beam, the stream. But that warmth comes from somewhere, right? It goes back to the sun. The sun, the S-U-N, not the S-O-N, right? <laughs> uh, the sun actually provides all of that warmth. That is the source. Well, he's saying the same thing. When we stand in the grace of Christ, we are led to the fountain. We are led to the source of eternal love itself. Jesus Christ reveals the love of the Father. Next quote here is one of my favorites from John Owen. This is the will of God. He's talking about the Father. That he may always be eyed as benign, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein. And that peculiarly, as the Father, as the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love, this is that which Christ came to reveal, God as Father. I mean, that is just so incredibly rich. That the Father loves his people. He is the source, the fount of all love. The love that we stand in as believers comes from the Father. And it's hard for us to sometimes get this because, you know, all of us, no matter how godly our fathers were, they were all flawed. 
they were all sinful. They were all tainted by sin. And they would get displeased with us. They would be angry. They would, you know, bring out the wrath sometimes, right? Our Father is not like that at all. Our Heavenly Father loves His saints. He has some incredibly rich applicational thoughts all throughout. I don't have these in the slides, but if you have the handout, these are those four sub-points on under the love of the Father. Owen talks about the distinctiveness of God's love. Number one, His love is eternal. His love is eternal. The love of the Father was fixed on us before the foundation of the world, before time began. Before you had done the least good or the greatest evil. God's love was fixed on you before time began. One pastor put it really comfortingly. He said, the greatest proof that God can never stop loving you is because he never started. It's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's true. God set his love on us from eternity past, before time began. There was not a point in time, strictly speaking, where God chose to set his love on you. It was before time began. His love is eternal. Number two, his love is free. Owen writes, he loves us because he will. There was and there is, and I'd say there will be, nothing in us for which we should be beloved. There's no reason why except for the free willing of God. It's funny, we talk about, you know, the free will of mankind. Well, what about my free will? It's like, what about the Father's free will? (laughs) What about God's free will? Can God do whatever he wants? Yes, of course. It's ridiculous. We put our own free will on a pedestal and not the sovereign will of the Father. He can do that which he pleases. And it is out of his simple, free will that he sets his love on you, not for anything you've done. Number one, eternal. Number two, free. Number three, unchangeable. The love of the Father is unchangeable. Owen writes, though we change every day, yet his love changeth not. Could any provocation turn it away? It had long since ceased. In other words, if there's any sin that we could do to turn away the love of the Father, it would have happened already. But his love is unchanging. Number four, his love is distinguishing distinguishing. He hath not loved all the world. And mainly he's alluding here to Romans 9, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. His love is distinguishing. It's sovereign, it's free, it's eternal, it's unchangeable. Final quote here from Owen, you see on the slides. Let I say the soul frequently I, the love of the Father, and that under these considerations, they are all soul-conquering, and endearing. He's saying, if you want to warm your heart, warm your soul to the love of God, think about these things. These things that we've just delighted in and meditated on, these are soul conquering and endearing. These will conquer your doubts, your fears, your worries, and they endear you more to love God. He adds, he says this actually early on, and this is essential. He asks the question, how do we receive this love? How do we receive the love of the Father? And this is essential. By faith. That's his answer. There's no weird, mystical experience you can have to receive the love of the Father. You receive the love of the Father by faith, by trusting in what God's Word says, what his promises are that are revealed in Scripture. That's how you experience the love of the Father, by faith. 
So number one, the believer has communion with the Father in love. Number two, the believer has communion with the Son in grace. The believer has communion with the Son in grace. He mentions three ways we have this communion with Christ in grace. He talks about personal grace, purchased grace, and then grace communicated by the Holy Spirit. Just by the way, I, I mean, I'm barely scratching the surface of this book. Um, the abridged version is about 200 pages. I'm, you know, cliff note version of 20 pages. I mean, he, it is incredibly rich, um, and there is a lot that I am cutting out. Um, but he spends this whole section here talking about those three types of grace, he argues, for in Christ. Personal grace, purchase grace, and then grace that we have communicated by the Holy Spirit. A word on Song of Solomon. He spends a, a significant portion of this uh, book on talking about Song of Solomon, okay? Generally speaking, I don't think that's where most of us would probably go <laughs> to talk about Christ. Uh, historically, you have to understand that the church did not interpret uh, the Song of Solomon the way we do today as a poetic book on love in marriage, okay? Um, Owen comes from a historic line that saw the book allegorically referring to Christ's love for his church. Now, I'm not going to get into the hermeneutics of all of it. Um, I actually, it's a difficult question <laughs> for me. I'm not sure actually entirely where I stand. There are certainly things that I think you have to understand in relation to Christ and his church, but I don't think the allegorical method is the correct way to interpreting the book. I'd suffice it to say this. I agree with the theology that Owen arrives at, not with how he gets there. Does that make sense? I don't agree with how he gets there. I agree with the theology that he arrives at. Um, there's a large section uh, in part two here dealing with Christ in Song of Solomon. I actually wanted to read. I didn't read this in class because we didn't have time, but because I don't have time limits on this recording, I will read it. Um, he has this wonderful section on the loveliness of Christ. It's a little bit extended, a little bit of some antiquated language, but I will read it for you. I hope it uh, warms your heart. I'm talking about the loveliness of Christ. He says he is lovely in his person, in the glorious all-sufficiency of his deity, gracious purity and holiness of his humanity, authority and majesty, love and power. He's lovely in his birth and incarnation, when he was rich for our sakes becoming poor, taking part of flesh and blood because we partook of the same, being made of a woman, that for us he might be made under the law even for our sakes. He's lovely in the whole course of his life, and the more than angelic holiness and obedience which in the depth of poverty and persecution he exercised therein, doing good, receiving evil, blessing and being cursed, reviled, reproached all his days. Lovely in his death, yea, therein most lovely to sinners, never more glorious and desirable than when he came, broken, dead from the cross. Then had he carried all our sins into a land of forgetfulness. Then had he made peace and reconciliation for us. Then had he procured life and immortality for us. Lovely in his whole employment, in his great undertaking, in his life, death, resurrection, ascension. He's talking about the gospel. Being a mediator between God and us to recover the glory of God's justice and to save our souls, to bring us to an enjoyment of God who were set at such an infinite distance from him by sin. He's lovely in the glory and majesty wherewith he is crowned. Now he is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, where, though he be terrible to his enemies, 
yet he is full of mercy, love, and compassion towards his beloved ones. He's lovely in all those supplies of grace and consolations, in all the dispensations of his Holy Spirit, whereof his saints are made partakers. He's lovely in all the tender care, power, and wisdom which he exercises in the protection, the safeguarding, the delivery of his church and people in the midst of all the oppositions and persecutions whereunto they are exposed. He's lovely in all his ordinances and the whole of that spiritually glorious worship which he hath appointed to his people, whereby they draw nigh and have communion with him and his Father. Lovely and glorious in the vengeance he takes and will finally execute upon the stubborn enemies of himself and his people. Lovely in the pardon which he has purchased and does dispense, in the reconciliation he has established, in the grace that he communicates, in the comforts that he administers, in the peace and joy he gives his saints, in his assured preservation of them unto glory. What shall I say? There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. He is altogether lovely. I just found that incredibly rich, incredibly encouraging about the loveliness of Christ. Uh, One more point here. How to hold daily communion with the Son. You'll see this in the slides. This is an incredibly rich section. He talks about daily considering, daily approving, daily rejoicing in the work of Christ. And then he focuses on making actual interchange, actual commutation, uh, is the word he uses, with the Lord as to their sins and his righteousness. How do we do that? Okay. Some of you are maybe thinking, it's like, okay, Caleb, I get it. You're excited about communion with God. You like John Owen. So what? Like, just tell me what to do here, okay? Um, You know, you're kind of like the guy who goes to the doctor, and it's like, hey, I don't care what's wrong with me. Just tell me what medicine to take, okay? Give me two of these, and I'll take it, okay? Not saying you should do that. (laughs) You should know what's wrong and then what to do. Um, That's what Owen has been trying to do. Okay, here's what's wrong. Here's what you need to do. Um, How do you live that out? How to hold daily communion with the Son? Here's how you do that. Daily, here's how you have a relationship with Christ, okay? Point number one, you continually keep alive a sense of the guilt and evil of sin. Okay, so if you're following along in those notes, that's that sub-point under point number two, right? See point I, point two, three, four, right? You continually keep alive a sense of the guilt and evil of sin. As David said in Psalm 51, what does he say? My sin is ever before me, okay? We do this not to terrify us, not to terrify your soul with it, but to keep alive in your conscience, in your mind, how wicked evil, how, how wicked and evil sin is, okay? That's what you do. Keep alive a sense of the guilt and evil of sin. Number two, consider sins you have not yet brought to God. Consider sins that you have not yet brought to God. Owen writes, gather up in your thoughts the sins for which you have not made a particular reckoning with God in Christ, okay? So consider how you've sinned. Consider how you have fallen short. Remember, this is daily, okay? Just being honest with you, I do not do this daily, but this is something that we probably should do daily. I think he's right on here. He says this, this the saints do. They gather up their sins. They lay them in the balance of the law. They see and consider their weight and their desert. What, is the, what, what do they deserve? And then, point number three, by faith in Christ, believe the gospel. By faith in Christ, believe the gospel. Owen writes this, they, the saints, they seriously consider 
and by faith conquer all objections to the contrary, that Jesus Christ, by the will and appointment of the Father, has really undergone the punishment that was due to those sins that lie now under his eye and consideration. So he's saying, believe by faith that your sins have been paid for, right? He quotes Isaiah 53, talks about 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right? He became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ paid for our sins. By faith in Christ, believe the gospel. You lay down your sins at the foot of the cross where Christ paid for the sins of his people once and for all. And then point four, receive the righteousness of Christ. You receive the righteousness of Christ. Having thus by faith given up their sins to Christ and seen God laying them all on him, they draw nigh, they draw near the believers and take from him that righteousness which he hath wrought out for them. This is daily how a believer has a relationship, communion with Jesus Christ. Consider your sins. Keep alive a sense of the guilt and evil of it. You come to Christ by faith. You believe the gospel and you receive the righteousness of Christ. You continually trust in him. This next part is by far my favorite. You see these next two slides. Number one, objection. Right? It's almost like Owen is, he's playing like devil's advocate. Someone's saying, wait a minute, objection. It may be said, surely this course of procedure can never be acceptable to Jesus Christ. What? Shall we daily come to him with our filth, our guilt, our sins? May he not, will he not bid us keep them to ourselves? They are our own. Shall we be always giving sins and taking righteousness? Next slide. Answer. There is not anything that Jesus Christ is more delighted with than that his saints should always hold communion with him as to this business of giving and receiving. I don't know what you guys, that just absolutely warms my heart to love the Lord, right? Daily, can we do this? Lay down our sins and take up the righteousness of Christ? He says, can we, this is outrageous, answer, there's not anything that Jesus Christ is more delighted with, that we should always be about this business of laying down our sins at the foot of his cross and taking up the righteousness that we have in him. That is just excellent, soul-enriching. So communion with the Father in love, communion with the Son in grace. Finally, point number three, communion with the Holy Spirit in comfort. Communion with the Holy Spirit in comfort. He goes to John 14 to 15, right? Remember, um, Jesus says that it's to his advantage uh, that he goes away for his disciples, such that the helper or the advocate will come. Paul in Romans 8, 15 talks about the spirit of adoption uh, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us, he sanctifies us, and he comforts us. He has this really helpful remark uh, for a struggling Christian, right? Difficult times and seasons will come for the believer, okay? Whether they're outward trials, external, uh, family, work, job, whatever it is, internal, dealing with sin, doubt, despair, whatever it is. It's not if those times come, it's when, when they come. He has this really helpful remark you see on the next slide here, a couple quotes. He says, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, may always abide with us, though not always comfort us. There will be times in the believer's life where the comfort of the Holy Spirit seems to be absent. 
For other ends and purposes, he is always with us as to sanctify and make us holy. Right? He's referring there. Um, just think of Hebrews 12, right? The Lord disciplines the son that he loves. And that's oftentimes going to be difficult. But he ends here. I deny that ever the Holy Spirit doth absolutely and universally leave a believing soul without consolation or comfort. There's never a time when the Holy Spirit will absolutely desert us. Never. The Holy Spirit is always with us. In fact, he has a quote there. I don't have it in front of me. But he talks about how oftentimes those feelings, those seasons where it seems that the Holy Spirit has left us and that he's not loving us or comforting us right now, is actually some of the greatest proofs that he is, is that he's turning us to look back to him. And so I'll just end with this remark. I've already gone on longer than I should have. But he ends with this remark on the comfort of the Holy Spirit uh, that I hope encourages you as it encourages me. He says, in the whole course of our obedience, okay, in the whole walk of the Christian, he says, are his comforts necessary also, that we may go through with it cheerfully, willingly, patiently to the end. Skip down a little bit. He says, in a word, in all the concernments of this life, And in our whole expectation of another, we stand in need of the comforts of the Holy Spirit. Without them, the comforts of the Holy Spirit, we shall either despise afflictions or faint under them, and God be neglected as to intendments in them. Without them, without the comforts of the Holy Spirit, sin will either harden us to a contempt of it or cast us down to a neglect of the remedies graciously provided against it. Without the comforts of the Holy Spirit, Duties will either puff us up with pride or leave us without that sweetness which is in new obedience. Without the comforts of the Holy Spirit, prosperity will make us carnal, sensual, and to take up our contentment in these things and utterly weaken us for the trials of adversity. Without the comforts of the Holy Spirit, the comforts of our relations will separate us from God. Without the comforts of the Holy Spirit, the calamity of the church will overwhelm us and the prosperity of the church will not concern us. Without the comforts of the Holy Spirit, we shall have wisdom for no work, peace in no condition, strength for no duty, success in no trial, joy in no state, no comfort in life, no light in death. He's saying, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. (laughs) And he ends with this quote, How sad then is the condition of poor souls destitute of the comforts of the Holy Spirit. How much do we need the Holy Spirit day in and day out to be working within us? That is a brief introduction to communion with God. Again, I barely scratched the surface. That was the book giveaway. So if anyone's listening, I'm sorry, you didn't get it. (laughs) But I highly, highly recommend picking it up. This is also a great foundation uh, for setting up for next week, right? dealing with sin and temptation, right? So the great deal of our communion with God consists in contemplating and considering what we talked about today, the trying work of God and the gospel. The flip side of that is thinking rightly about sin and waging all-out warfare against it. So thinking about God and knowing ourselves rightly in our sin nature and fighting against it. And that is what we'll be looking at next week with John Owens, the mortification of sin and also on temptation.